everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is a special share episode with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We have Scott McGill from the Wildlife Generation Pro Cycling team. You may also know him from being off the front at the recent World Road Race Championships. Really impressive performance. We are so excited to get him that we wanted to take advantage of that and have him be on an episode for both of our shows. So you're listening if you're listening to beyond the pellets are right now this is the episode if you're listening to choose the hard way welcome so andrew do you want to make a little introduction and say a little bit about your show if people might not be familiar yeah for sure if you are new to choose the hard way choose the hard way is a show where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger more resilient people and how the hard things in life can be fun things too and if you have not met Spencer before, I frequently co-host Spencer's show, Beyond the Peloton. If you enjoy professional cycling, pro sports, I think it's the best podcast in professional cycling. So be sure to go check it out. Subscribe, give it five stars, follow. And Spencer also has a newsletter, both free and paid. I recommend subscribing and uh, becoming a paid subscriber. It's my favorite uh, content in professional cycling right now. Uh, so that's who we are. That's what we're doing. And I'm really excited, Scott, to talk to you today. I will say that I first became aware of you when I saw you in the breakaway at the World Championships that Spencer just talked about. It was awesome to see you up there and to see America represented in the break. Yeah, looking forward to talking about that today and talking about pro cycling, what's going on in the United States and get some of your other thoughts on what's happening in the sport. So Thanks so much for joining us, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. And we should start there, because Andrew and I were watching. The race was late at night here. We're watching. We don't know what the heck's going on. It was kind of poorly produced. It started, looked like it was really hard. You guys go up the first climb. I think it was Mount Kira. Chaos ensues, and then we're like, whoa, there's an American in the break. Who is it? Whoa, he's on a tarmac, like a rim break tarmac. What's happening here? He's a split nose saddle. We don't recognize this person. And then I figure out it's Scott McGill of the Wildlife Generation Pro Cycling Team, which is, you know, that's like a team that a lot of people that I might do group ride group rides with in Boulder are on. So I was like, wow, this is like a real, like a, a real American racer here. This isn't some fancy Euro pro. So Scott, do you want to talk about that moment, like what that meant for your career and like what brought you there? Like how did you, how did you get into cycling and then how did you end up off the front of the world championships? Yeah. How did you get in that breakaway? Because again, watching the broadcast, it was totally unclear. Just suddenly you were off the front and I think your group had a three minute lead on the pack. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, our, our, our plan going into the race, um, I was kind of able to look for the breakaway along the coast. Like, you know, there was 30 Ks before we got to, to Mount Kira, which was the first climb. Um, so usually if you, you tell me to look for the breakaway, I'm going to get in the breakaway just because I like racing, that type of racing. Um, so I just basically followed every attack until <laughs> in the beginning part of the race until, and you could like tell that, you know, the bigger nations wanted a break to go um, before the climb. And then ended up in the breakaway, and um, you know that was kind of to try to anticipate the race blowing up from behind. So you know I'm not the the strongest like pure climber out there. So if I can get ahead of the race and then be in in the race later in the race um, as the the groups of favorites come up to the breakaway, that was kind of the idea um, going into the race. So it ended up working just like that and the race did end up like exploding on kira i guess a little bit um so yeah and you guys were out there forever i i mean a getting getting in front of the race never a bad idea at world championships but you were out there for hours i mean it must have been like three or four hours you guys were off the front and then evanapol catches you do you want to talk about that for like what was that like when he comes up from the peloton and gets into your group was he going just like unbelievably fast or did you think like oh i can hold this guy's wheel and out sprint him <laughs> yeah i mean i had really had no idea what was like happening behind the time gaps were just like like we got a seven minute time gap at one point and then i was like oh nice like that's you know we'll probably make it pretty far and then i got like a two minute time gap and, and i and then i guess that is when 
they raced up Kira super hard and the gap went down by five minutes, which is a lot. Um, but I, I didn't know if that was like somebody who got dropped from the break. That was the gap to them. Cause sometimes they'll just give a gap to like the next guy, but it's not actually the Peloton and they didn't label anything on, on the whiteboards or anything like that. So, and then the, the car came up to me maybe as we were entering the circuits. Um, and that was the only time I had any communication with the car, and they just said the race is exploding behind. So then we just kept, you know, rolling through, trying to, you know, keep a steady pace um, through the circuits. And then when the group, yeah, when the group with Avonapol came up and uh, Nielsen Palace was in that group, and, and we just kind of, like, exchanged a few words, and I was like, what do you want me to <laughs> do here? Because I was like, <laughs> I had no idea what had happened in the race. Um, because I was just, you know, ro- rotating in a pace line in the front. Um, but then I was like, all right, for sure, next time up the climb, I'll get dropped. Um, up the, the climb in the circuit, I bl- was it like Mount Pleasant or something? Yeah, I think it was Mount well, Pleasant. Yeah. But then that time they ended up going like super slow for some reason up the climb. So I made it like a whole nother lap uh, still in, in the, the front group, I guess. And then did what I could to help Nielsen like position him for the climb or, or whatever. Cause that was kind of the idea was that I was there uh, for the end of the race. So Scott, there's been a lot of post-race analysis and discussion about number one race radios and the impact. And if you're a casual listener or you haven't followed the world championships super closely in the world championships, the UCI does not allow the use of race radios, which are used in all other races throughout the year. So there were no race radios. You didn't necessarily what was going on behind you other than there is a motorcycle that does have a chalkboard or whiteboard that has time gaps. That also became a post-race controversy because apparently they were not highly accurate time gaps. So you didn't really have a lot of information out there off the front of the race. I'm curious what was the dialogue among the riders, if any? Was everyone confused? Were people just drilling it? Like, what was happening, and what did that confusion do to the approach that you all took going deeper into the race? <laughs> um, I mean, the only real dialogue was other riders shouting at the motorcycle when the time gaps were clearly, like, wrong. You know, like, we would get, like, we got a two-minute time gap, and then, and then it went back out to seven minutes which were like what like that's not possible within like a 5 minute period like it's only been 5 minutes but the gap can't grow by 5 minutes <laughs> so uh but it ended up I think it was just because there were so many groups on the road that they were just giving time gaps to different groups and that's kind of where a lot of the confusion happened um but I just tried to not I mean there's nothing you can really do about it you just keep rotating through and try to save as much energy as possible when you're in the breakaway. So that was kind of my thought process. And do you guys have, you, you have a team car? Like, and if so, who is in the team car? Is that person supplied by USA cycling or, or what's the team? Like, what is the team support you're getting at world championships? Um, yeah. I mean, we have like, you know, mechanics and swan years as well. And then the, the director was TJ Van Garderen for, the elite men. So each, each category has kind of their own director, but then like, uh, Mike Sayers was also in the car and then a mechanic. So that when they came up, up and then they couldn't really pass the Peloton. Um, so they were staying back with the Peloton rather than coming up with the breakaway. So a lot of my, like I had to use (laughs) the neutral service for like gels and feeding and stuff. Um, you know, they all had water and gels and, so I didn't really need the team car other than like to tell me what was going on, but it really didn't, I didn't really need to know what was going on. I was just kind of like curious. <laughs> and was the pre-race plan, like, did you guys sit down in the hotel the night before and, and palace was your, the Nielsen palace was kind of your designated leader. And the goal was to try to get him as high of a finish as possible. Or was it yeah, just pretty of, much go, go out uh, there and race guys. Yeah. Nielsen as well as, uh, Magnus. And it was kind of like an interesting group of riders that were selected. Like uh Keegan Swenson was on the team and we're you know, he hasn't really done much road racing, so we don't you know, you didn't really know what role he could play um in in the race. 
And then Nielsen and Magnus were kind of like the designated leaders, I guess. And also, there were so many riders that chose to sit out world championships this time around because it was in Australia. I don't know what your situation was, Scott, or if you can even talk about it, but it seemed like even at the world tour level, many of the top riders in the sport were having to foot the bill for their own transportation. And it just seemed like a very complex and somewhat messy situation relative to other world championships that happen in the Northern hemisphere. Do you have any thoughts about that or the impact that it had on racing? Did it have any impact on you or Team USA at all? Um, I mean, it probably had an impact on me because I wouldn't have gone without these because <laughs> another rider would have been selected. Um, also, like the relegation battle with the, the World Tour teams uh, played a huge role in it. Like a few Americans were not able to go because they were told not to go by their trade team. Um, and I had... You know, being on a continental team, you usually I didn't even think that I could go to the world championships until uh, we did a race in Portugal, uh, the Volta Portugal, and I was able to, to like win a, a few stages and the the green jersey. So then I like checked the the like selection criteria, I guess, like the day it was due to petition, and ended up submitting a petition to go to the worlds, and then didn't really find out until maybe two weeks before. That is crazy. I, I think I could optimize that selection process a little bit. Well, I, th that was, I think it was because I was the, I was like a reserve rider. Yeah. And then they didn't know who was going to go until that point. So then I, I got the call up. Did they, what does that petition process look like? What do you actually have to submit? Is it just your Palmares, like recent results? What do you have to submit? Pretty much just your results and like why maybe why you think you should be selected or like so there, you know, there's an essay component you wrote an essay i did not write an essay <laughs> maybe maybe i should have and i would have been the you know not been a reserve <laughs> did you have to pay for your own travel there or did they buy you a ticket uh they did not buy a ticket that is wild i told you andrew we were debating if if like the gravel racers were getting support from USA cycling and I, it was my inclination that there's as little support as possible. I mean, that is, I guess we, we spend our country as a, our money as a country in, in interesting ways, but you'd think that we could get people tickets to world championships. Um, I think, I think we're the wealthiest country in the world. Last time I checked. Yeah. The, the staff and support at the, the race was very, very good. Um, like we had really good accommodations, probably the best out of any nation. Um, and we had, you know, plenty of soigneurs and, and mechanics to, to do everything. We had chefs. Um, so the food was really good. Yeah. So they did a, a good job on, on that stuff. And what did was you have a middle seat? Sorry, Spencer. I have <laughs> I to know. know. Did you have a middle seat on the flight? No, I think I paid like 30 bucks to get a not a middle seat, which was totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. Always out. is. Yeah. Yeah. It, what was the housing strategy? Were you guys in a hotel or did like they just rent a big house for everybody? We were in like an apartment complex and like everyone was on in the same apartment complex. And then we had like three ri riders per like little room, room, like a short term apartment thing. And then we had like a food room where everyone ate. Um, so it was pretty nice. And a, a lot of other nations, like people were staying and we were on like basically on the course and a lot of other countries were staying like in Sydney, which was an hour away. Um, and there was like some stories of teams with no Wi-Fi and like teams staying in little like huts on the beach, basically. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, we had we had we lucked out um, with the accommodations. Yeah, I think Van I mean Vanderpool maybe would have won the race if he would have been in your accommodations as opposed to maybe <laughs> random Sydney hotel room. And I don't know what it is about Australia. They have some sort of shortage of Wi-Fi. Like the internet there is just like not fantastic. So I'm not surprised to hear people didn't have Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we had good Wi-Fi, so that's great. No Scott, complaints there. how far? How long before the race did you arrive in Australia? Um, like nine days before the race. So and I had a good feel, amount of time. You felt adjusted? Oh, yeah. Probably took like, 
only two or three days, really. If you, as long as you, uh, I just like, you know, when I got there, just stayed up until bedtime, even though I really wanted to like go to sleep. And then that, you know, a few days I was waking up at like three in the morning, just wide awake. But then after that, back to normal. When did you find out that you actually were selected for the team? Probably like after the Maryland race. So yeah, like two or three weeks before the race. And did you get a call or an email? How did you find out and what did that feel like? Um, I think it was just like a text, like, yeah, you're on the team. And then I don't know. I had a pretty good like idea that I was going to get picked just because like of the riders that weren't able to go. Um, it was more like, I need to start training for this, like stressful event, anything <laughs> <laughs> like panic, start panic training. <laughs> so you, that, I mean, I'm just looking at the calendar. So Maryland classic was, uh, September 4th world championship, September 25th. I mean, you must've flown out. You must've heard and then basically bought a ticket right away and then gotten on a plane just a few days after that. Yes, yeah, pretty much. Pretty, pretty crazy month for you. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of travel. Coming from the East Coast in the U.S., it's like a lot because you have to go all the way to California, and that's like a lot, and then get on the 14-hour flight to Australia. Yeah, so. yeah, that's tough. And <laughs> just to back up for a second, you mentioned Volta Portugal. That is like the hardest race that no one's ever heard of. It's a really, really hard race. I'm just looking at you. You won the points classification. You win two stages. You podiumed on one, two, three, four, five stages. I mean, that's, re- that's a really impressive ride at that race. Um, I, I would guess there's not many Americans that could have put up those types of stats at that race. I, I mean, what was that like? Did you go in and you've been, you had been racing in, had you been racing in Europe or racing in the U.S. this year mainly? Uh, we did a lot of race. I guess we did like a lot of racing in Turkey. Um, we did the tour of Rwanda. So that's in Africa. And, um, and then we did a few races in the U.S., like Joe Martin, Nationals, and then a few crits, like, in between to fill, fill out the calendar. And then again with Portugal, we found out we were going, like, two or three weeks beforehand, so didn't have much time to, to train for that. Um, that's definitely, like, the life of a continental-level cyclist is just not knowing anything or getting last-minute invites, not much, like, planning your season or anything like that. So just did some panic training and I guess it, I guess I work, I do well under when I'm panic training. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like, did you find the racing hard to adapt to? Or, I mean, clearly you adapt, you adapted quickly if you did, but like, what's the difference? And I mean, Joe Martin's a hard race. That's a race I've done, but it's big, wide open roads, um, in Arkansas. And then you go to Portugal. I assume that's a much more technical race with a deeper field. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, a lot of the stages like had technical finishes, like they finish in towns. And a lot of the the whole town there is like cobbled. So every town you go through, there's like bottles flying everywhere and tight turns and everything. Um So yeah, I mean that that kind of like the racing I like. Um I don't particularly like the like racing on American roads just cuz they're it's it's more boring. There's less going on. Um Not that I don't like racing in America, just I'd rather it be, you know, on a, on a tight and twisty road uh, with like a technical finish. That's funny. That's what Keegan Swerble uh, told me the same thing where he just doesn't connect that well with the, he's on, he was on rally last year. I don't know if he's going to be on it this coming year, but just didn't connect with the American style of racing. And he did really well at the Tour of Portugal uh, the year before you did it in 2021. So after world championships, I mean, that's, it's a really impressive result. Like you're finishing behind the only Americans to beat you are Nielsen Palace, Magnus Sheffield. Sheffield's on Ineos. Palace is on uh, EF. I think Keegan, you finished right around Keegan Swenson's spot, who's probably the top gravel racer in the U.S., if not the world. And th- did you get any interest from bigger teams, or are you going to be on Wildlife Generation next year? Like, w- what's the future look like at this point? Uh, when does this podcast come out? What do you think, Andrew? Soon, right? It's a good, when do you want it to come out, Scott? Uh, <laughs> I, it, it just hasn't been announced yet, so I don't want to, you know, say it on a... On a <laughs> but if it, it, when will it come out? 
We can hold it back for you if you need okay. us to. Yeah, then I uh, signed with Human Powered Health for the next two years. So I will be joining what is formerly known as Rally Cycling, now known as Human Powered Health. Congratulations. Congrats. I was Thank just you. thinking about this today. I was thinking, why don't they sign Scott McGill? They're, they're struggling. They had uh, I, his name is escaping me. Um, he was U.S. national champion. Is it Ryan Murphy? Kyle Murphy? Kyle Murphy. Um, Kyle Murphy didn't renew with them. I guess he just wanted to stay in the U.S. and race. That kind of yeah. leaves a natural gap for you to come in and fill there. Yeah. Yeah, I was rooming with Kyle at uh, Worlds, actually. So he did, he did the Worlds. Um, and he, he just, yeah, wanted to race in the U.S. Uh, he's got, like, young kids and stuff like that. Stuff I don't, I don't have to worry about just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so just living I mean, in I'd Europe imagine. is just, you know, harder for some people. Yeah. And what's your aspiration during the next two years of your career? Where do you want to go? What type of racing do you see as your sweet spot? What would you like to achieve? Yeah, um, Human Powered Health does a lot of like, you know, point one level and, and pro series level races. Um, so that's kind of like races with like a few World Tour teams in them. But then the majority of it's, you know, pro continental and continental teams. So that will give, hopefully, you know, give me a chance to, to try to win a few races. Um, whereas if you're just getting, you know, your ass kicked all the time, it's not, you know, we'll still do a few races, uh, world tour races, but kind of that, that level of racing in between, you know, like your Joe Martin and tour of the Gila and, and world tour, um, seems like a, a a good sweet spot for for a rider like me i mean there's a good chance you guys could be at it's kind of some funny stuff going on in that second division i i, I think you guys even did tour of switzerland this year and last year so i mean you can you'll, you might find yourself at some races with some pretty stacked fields basically top top the top level races so that's going to be exciting congratulations on that yeah yeah i believe they did tour de swiss the last couple of years and are you going to relocate to Europe or are you going to stay in the U.S.? Uh, that is the plan, but I haven't like figured out all the details. I only signed a few days ago, so I got <laughs> I got to work on that. <laughs> and yeah, you just have to learn Catalan in like a week. Panic, panic, learning of languages as you panic train, and and then move to Girona, and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no sweat. So, what does your winter training look like? Um, right now I'm doing a few cyclocross races, um, and that was just kind of my plan before I ended up joining Human Powered Health. Um, so I'm, uh, like this weekend I'll be doing the Pan American Championships, which are in Massachusetts. Um, and then I haven't really made any plans yet, but typically I'll go to North Carolina and train down there, um, cause it's just slightly warmer and the riding is phenomenal, um, and that's where I went to school, so I got plenty of people to train with. So that's typically what I do, but we'll see um, what happens this year. Andrew, do you want to ask about the rim breaks, or do you want Yeah, to- of course I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Scott, just so you know, this has been a topic of frequent discussion throughout 2022. I think we began the season with a discussion of rim breaks, and in addition to just being blown away to see you in that break at the world championships. I think the next thing we thought after we thought, who is this writer and what have they done was, wow, they're on rim brakes. Like this is a miracle. What's happening. So how did you end up on a rim brake bike? And yeah, it was a tarmac. Was that an SL six is probably the last year they made rim brakes, right? Uh, yeah, I guess it's an SL six. Um, that's just, the bike I was issued <laughs> from the team. Uh, yeah, I mean, we stayed on rim brakes. Just being like, you know, a continental level team, you kind of have to spend every dollar wisely. So to switch to disc brakes means you have to switch all your wheels. Need So, you know, what is that? Tw- maybe 20 or 30 sets of wheels. Uh, all the bikes, all the, and then all the spare bikes have to be disc too. Um, so it's kind of like a, a lot, big undertaking for a team, a smaller team, um, to switch over to disc brakes. So, I mean, I really 
don't care honestly uh, what brakes I have because I I just make do with whatever I am provided. Did you feel like you were a bit superior to the other riders though because you were on a faster wheel set that was somewhat lighter than what they were riding? Uh, it didn't really cross my mind, honestly. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it's the thesis of this podcast that we find it so humorous that like, uh, I don't know, Remco Evanapol is on a heavier bike than like Chris Froome was winning tours on 10 years ago. It's crazy. Like, cause these disc brake bikes are so heavy. Like a lot of them are like tanks. So yeah, it's like old tech. You know, people don't want rim brakes anymore, but you know, you're out there going up Mount Kira on a not insignificantly lighter bike, in my opinion. Like it probably did give you a little bit of a, at least a climbing advantage. I mean, maybe you could get into like descending theory and if you can brake later going into the corners and the disc brakes, it helps. But I don't know. I don't know if I totally buy that. Yeah, I'm just glad it wasn't raining because like almost I think every other road race, it was raining at the Worlds except for the elite men. So. <laughs> That was good. Scott, you mentioned something else about the race itself that I think will be of interest to some of our listeners out there who are out there training and racing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like a lot of your nutrition during the race and your feeds was coming from neutral support, like you were taking bottles and gels just from a support car. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had people standing on the road uh, as well, but like... right. Yeah, a lot of it came from the neutral support. Okay. And I know a lot of amateurs put a lot of thought into their feeding strategies, making sure they're eating products that they're familiar with, that they're, you know, their stomach can handle or whatever. But it sounds like you were just like, hey, whatever, I need some carbs, whatever gels are available, I'm going to take. Did you have any kind of specific carb, you know, grams of carb per hour strategy you were trying to stick to? Or were you just eating by feel? What were you doing during the race? <laughs> I usually just kind of eat by feel, I guess. I don't really, I just try to eat more than I, uh, enough. Um, and, you know, being able to eat different t- products or different, drink different products. Like I, I don't want to be set on one thing because rarely are you able to actually like get that in the race and like you know you guys spend all this time worrying about what feed i'm going to take when and then you miss that feed and then you're screwed and it's better just to be able to be flexible and uh i mean this goes for like everybody i think like you know you can always borrow a gel off another team or or steal a bottle from a team you never know what's going to be in it so if you kind of just are able to be flexible it's it's better that way and being you know again on a continental level team it's not like we have you know unlimited nutritional products to train with or anything so i i it's not like i'm always training with one specific gel or anything like that um so yeah when you go out on a training ride what historically what do you tend to take with you for nutrition do you use mix or do you take gels or eat real food what do you prefer whatever i can find in my parents house honestly (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of take That'd whatever. Be hilarious if you were joining <laughs> joining Enios or something <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> at your preseason consultation. So what what do you have before your rides? Cookie, couple cookies, Snicker bar, whatever's in there. Yeah, and that's really funny. This you're like you're you're ruining people's dreams right now. You're being very cruel. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who care very deeply about the nutrition who are being taught that. They just don't have the talent to be a professional cyclist. I mean, maybe if I dialed it in more, I'm sure I could improve something, but it's just like you can only spend your energy doing thinking about so much stuff. <laughs> no, I, just, I totally agree with you. And Andrew, your last guest on Choose the Hard Way, the team doctor, his name escapes me, Kevin Sprouse? Is that his yes. name? Yes. Yeah. Uh, team doctor for EF. He's been the team doctor there for a while, and I think – Maybe people my age and a little bit older who were pros maybe partied harder than current professionals or maybe younger professionals. And he had an interesting insight that, you know, there'd be guys in that team that would go home and just be raging when they weren't racing and their results were not 
worse. Like their performances were roughly the same with the guys who live like monks now. So, you know, there's something to be said for just not being so mentally locked in on stuff that it, oh, I don't have a, Mar- a Martin gel. I'm an, I'm, a, I'm going to lose my mind or I can't ride my bike because I don't have the right gel. Like there's probably a freedom in that. Yeah. Where are my, where are my ketones? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't have that magic bottle of ketones. So Scott, kind of in the same vein, whether it's the world championships or the race in Portugal, what do you like before a race? Do you get nervous? Are you calm? What's it like? Uh, I probably get pretty nervous. Definitely before a time trial for some reason. Uh, (laughs) I'll, I'll be stressing about everything. Um, I wouldn't say it's like nervous about the race. I'm just like worried that I forgot something or something like that. Or like, I want to make sure I got everything I need. Um, but I'm not really nervous about like the, the racing, like, Oh, I have to win or anything like that. Like, especially road racing, you have the whole race to be nervous, right? It's usually a pretty relaxed start. Um, unless like at the world, it's like I was trying to get in the breakaway. So I was like, trying to line up at the front even before, you know, even though there's a neutral, you st- it's still hard to get to the front in the neutral. Um, and then was trying to stay in the front in the neutral, which is easier said than done. So that, that was a little nerve-wracking, but yeah, uh, depends on the race. Was it surreal to be at Worlds and like you have like Wout Van Aert there, Matthew Vanderpool, Rimko Evenepoel. I mean, these are big stars. Tade Pogacar, like was that create was that like a surreal experience or were you just like yeah whatever like I'm, I'm as good as these guys like they're lucky to be racing with scott mcgill uh i mean i didn't really race with those guys much because the breakaway was filled with more riders you know similar to me and like so i never really got to like race with those big names um or even see them in the like i saw them when they blew past me when i got dropped uh that was pretty much it <laughs> <laughs> so i yeah I, I yeah didn't really get to like like the breakaway had strong riders in it, but not, um, you know, those big favorite favorites or anything like that. And given that you knew you wanted to get in the break, I know worlds specifically is a very long race. And that was definitely the case this year. It was a very long race with a lot of climbing. Did you get on the trainer and warm up before the race, knowing you wanted to get into the break right away? Or did you just warm up on the road? No, I don't even think I warmed up. I just like pedal around and make sure my bike works, you know, test it out. Uh, <laughs> maybe ride to go take a piss or something. That's about it. <laughs> Living that pro life. I love it. <laughs> no, I mean, you There's know, you doing... never know how your bike is going to like shift. You know, I always try to ride around, check my brakes, check my skewers. You know, when I'm, all the mechanics are, are working on your bikes, it's like they could make a mistake. So you check all those things. And yeah, I don't think I've ever warmed up for a road race. So many dreams are crumbling out of Valmont Park right now. <laughs> hearing know, this podcast. There's people doing more preparation for group rides in Boulder than you did for the World <laughs> Championships. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, definitely like a, a shorter race I'll warm up for. But when it's going to yeah. be the world was like six and a half hours or something, there's no need. I got I got plenty of time to warm up. <laughs> All right. So, Scott, let's let's move in a different direction here just for a moment. Uh, as part of your racing calendar this year, you mentioned that you did some criterium racing. Given, you know, where your talents seem to be suited and some of the results that you've gotten this year. What is it like for a rider of your ability level to jump into a domestic criterium and how do you how do you think about those races and what is the level of difficulty um uh, there's some uh hard crits left in the u.s like like armed forces which is a a race in dc which is not far from my house uh it's like a 100k crit on a 1k course with with five corners so you're doing 500 turns in the race so that is i I love that race because it's it ends up splitting up in the end and it's not just like a 60 minute four corner crit. Um, and then, you know, Bucks County, which is another hard crit. Um, that's like pretty much it. The rest of them are, I guess easy is a way to put it, but they're also like just a different set of skills, you know, like Justin Williams is the best at the, uh, 60 minute flat crit, you know, 
he's better than anybody else. So like, that doesn't mean that it's e- like it's not easy to win because nobody wins it except him. Um, I just prefer a harder race, like longer f- and physically harder race. Whereas you know a lot of the crits are won on on more tactics than like pure strength. So if the Tour de France stage one this year was a 60-minute flat crit, I'm cracking up even thinking about it, um, would Justin Williams win that stage, you think? Like, is there <laughs> anyone better than him in the world? I mean, I would say he'd have a pretty, have a pretty good shot. It would still probably be hard because it's the Tour de France. So I would have, I would have, I would, I, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but. This is... Before your time, but I think the Tour Down Under, I mean, I, I know this, I remember this vividly, used to start with the criterium. So it was fascinating. You saw like the top riders and top teams in the world racing a crit. And it would, they almost like would reach terminal velocity. They'd be going like 34 miles an hour for the whole race. And it would be interesting to see like the top crit specialists racing there and see what they could do. Yeah, and I think that was a hot a hot dog shaped course, right? Didn't yeah, it have it two U turns? Yeah, yeah, and that's where the uh, tiny bar was invented. Um, like some Lotto Sudal riders came out with like really like thirty eight centimeter bars, and it blew everyone's mind. And like, oh, this these are too small. You can't turn them. But obviously, those are like those would be standard now. So, gotta know, Scott, what width bars are you running? Uh, 40 centimeter bars. I think that's like pretty standard. But again, just kind of whatever. Like, I think I, I asked for 40 centimeter bars, but then like, you just kind of get whatever you you get. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think that's what, uh, Dan Bigham said about his hour record. Yeah. He just, they just gave (laughs) some random bars and he, he did that. (laughs) Um, Scott, I'm looking at your, your pro cycling stats profile is hilarious because it has like a little spite, a slider for specialty. So it's like sprinter, you're all the way over and then climber, you're all the way over. So according to pro cycling stats, you're both an elite climber and sprinter. Is that how you would describe yourself or, you know, as you go to Europe, as you do bigger races, like, what do you see yourself specializing in? And like, if you're going to win a, a grand tour stage someday, like what type of stage would that be? I'm definitely not a climber, so I don't know where. There must be a issue with her algorithm or something, because that's not possible. Um, <laughs> but I'm definitely more of a sprinter type rider. Uh, but I'm not like you know I'm not like a big highway sprinter. I like like little uphill sprints or sprints you know after like a little climb where the bigger sprinter guys who can't you know get over like a small climb get will get dropped. Um, that's kind of my specialty, which ends up not being like that many races, but it happens that a lot of the races in Portugal were just like that. So that's, I think why I was able to do so well. Yeah. You're going to like Europe if that's the type of race you like. Yeah. But as you say in the U S it's not, you don't get a ton of those. You kind of remind me a little bit of, um, Travis McCabe, who was like King of the U S for a long time. And it won a U.S. Pro Championships, which was like shocking at the time because he wasn't on a European team, and then went to Europe. It got a little disrupted by COVID. Didn't I? Didn't think he really got a clean shot at it. But like, do you look at other Americans who have gone to Europe and try to learn from what they did or learn learn from what didn't work, or are you just kind of like confident that you seem like a confident person? Like you're not going to be rattled with the change in scenery, and you're just doing your own thing. Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think it'll be all right. I spent, we spent almost three months in a hotel in Turkey and didn't really get phased by that. So <laughs> that was <laughs> a might good, as well change the name of the tour Turkey to tour VPO. I mean, that is a, that is a hard race. There's a lot of really juiced up guys there. Yeah. I, I don't know about that, but yeah, it was a good, good race. It was a fun place to hang out for a few months. A few months. You were there for a few months. Yeah. Yeah, we were there for February, March, and most of April. What was that year. like? It was good. I mean, the, the weather's good. The, uh, the training was good. We, you know, we were 
it's it's relatively inexpensive to do like a training camp there compared to doing it in the US. Um and the food's good. So it was it was a great place and we did like, you know, some races in between like and then did a training camp in between. So, yeah. It worked out well. That's interesting. Potential location for the next Choose the Hard Way by Beyond the Peloton um, listener experience camp. Maybe that's where we'll locate it. So, Scott, I got to ask, how did you get on this path towards becoming a professional cyclist? When, how did you get started and when did you know this might be something you'd end up doing for a living? Uh, I started mountain biking like with my dad, you know, like a lot of people when I was maybe eight years old and started doing races around then. Um, my dad used to do a lot of 24 hour races where like mountain bike races where you are part of a team and you do laps for 24 hours and you know, each person goes one at a time. Um, so we would go to those and just kind of hang out for the whole few days that it was going on. Uh, and then eventually started doing road races. Um, and then through college did continue to do, you know, cyclocross a little bit, mountain biking and road. And then I guess just sided more to doing more road races than anything else. Um, and was able to join like a few development teams like Avolo Cycling, um, a small team called Gateway Devo Cycling, which is out of St. Louis. And, uh, and then eventually signed with Wildlife. And, that, and then now I'm here. And when you were eight and your dad started doing, or he was doing at the time, these 24 hour races, did that seem like a good idea? Uh, yeah. So the, the guy who was like, <laughs> I guess that's, that's what I thought bike racing was at the time. Cause that's what I was dragged to, you know? So like, I, he's like, Oh, you know, there's these like shorter races we can do. And I was like, Oh, I guess that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> So world championships and, uh, is like nothing to you, like seven hours. Yeah, that's not that's nothing. And the 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 guy who had won, I think he won like six or seven twenty four hour world championships, like, and he did it solo. Went to the same high school as me, so and there's like always oh, a movie about him and stuff. So that's kind of where I was got most of my inspiration, I guess. His name's Chris Etoff. Oh um, yeah, yeah. And was there a lot of good? So you're from, we might've said this before we started recording. You're from Maryland. Um, yep. Northern Maryland, close to Baltimore. Is there good, so the Maryland Cycling Classic must've been a big moment for you where you're like very excited to do that kind of on your home roads. Yeah, I was, you know, extremely excited. I've been like training on, you know, the upper part of the course at least for 10 years. Um, so it was cool to race on roads that I've been training on for so long. And to be able to, you know, have like so many friends and family go see what I actually do with my life was cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was, was there good mountain biking when, around the area when, when you were growing up? Was it easy to get out and? Yeah, get, yeah, there's like, a, a trail system like a, yeah. a mile from my house that's maybe like 30 or 40 miles of trails. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, like in Brevard where there's like big mountain descents or anything like that, but it's, it's a good place to go kind of, yeah. Ride mountain bikes. Like I ride, I just ride my cyclocross bike on the trails all the time now, um, for practice. Is that where you do most of your training these days from your parents' house and in Maryland? Yeah. That's kind of where I'm in and out of. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I don't make it down to North Carolina much anymore. Um, just cause I'm, traveling so much that I don't want to travel anymore than I have to. And Scott, for somebody your age with your level of ability coming up in the United States as a cyclist, it seems so many people in a similar situation are now moving in the direction of doing gravel racing rather than going deeper into road racing. Is that something that you've considered at all? Was it ever on the menu or what led to your decision to go in a different direction? Um, I have never really considered it, honestly. I mean, I've, I've, I know that that is a, a path that a lot of people have taken to make more money in the sport. Um, but I'd rather kind of follow my passion than I can make money doing a lot of stuff. So I don't need to go 
race 200 miles on gravel and not really enjoy it. Um, so I, you know, and, and it, I, there was even some opportunities to join like a crit team. Um, but I decided to just hold off in the hopes of getting a contract with, you know, a, a pro team or world tour team. Um, and I, you know, it ended up working out. Um, but that was kind of just a risk I was willing to take to, to follow what I'm more passionate about rather than just, just doing something just for the money. Um, yeah. Do you think if you were 14 instead of 24, like, would you be drawn to gravel? Like, do you ever even get into road racing or are you drawn to gravel racing or, or would you just still have that passion for, I, I'm a big fan of road racing, but it's kind of my career covering it. But, um, I know Andrew's a, a big gravel head, but would you still have been drawn towards road racing? You think? Um, I mean, it's hard to say, but probably just because, you know, the Tour de France is such a big thing in, in American households, I guess, like just, you know, the average household. Uh, and that's road racing. You know, I don't know if many, like, people who aren't involved in cycling know what unbound gravel is, right? Uh, so, like, yeah, I would say I just would still lean towards the road racing, but it, it's hard to say. Um, I don't know. I don't know if many people like aspire to do unbound as like a, if you're like a little kid, I don't know. I, I couldn't <laughs> envision that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I, I can't believe anyone's doing it period. It's like, I grew up really close to the course. And like, I remember when people started doing it, I'm like, I don't know, 200 miles on really hard gravel. That seems hard. I would like to do a shorter race than that, please. Yeah, I've yeah, never I just watched a, U- a YouTube. Go ahead, sorry, Scott. I've just never, you know, really got into the gravel thing. I've done one gravel race. That was that was enough. What was the race? <laughs> uh, twenty twenty one. It was like just more of a local gravel race, honestly. And when you were at Worlds, did Keegan Swenson attempt to turn you? Did he try to draw you over to the world of gravel? Did he try to put a flat brim monster energy hat on you or anything? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think he tried to do do that. He uh, no, didn't try to convince me. What What was that like having Keegan on as a teammate? I, I don't. I, from my research, I couldn't find any like high level professional road race that he'd ever done. Obviously, he's a very good bike rider. Um, were you guys like, hey, so Keegan, they're gonna start? And there might be a breakaway and we've got to try to like, or where did he just kind of like naturally understand the dynamics of a high level road race? Um, he definitely knew he was out of his element a little bit. Like he wasn't afraid to ask, not necessarily like a dumb question, but like he had, you know, he was like, all right, so what, like, what do I do? Uh, like he, he didn't try to act like he knew what he's, he was doing. Right. Um, which was good, which is exactly what I would have hoped. Um, yeah. It was cool having him on the team, just kind of like talking to somebody from that, that side of the sport was interesting. I thought he had a pretty impressive, I mean, just finishing a Worlds is hard. Like, that's an impressive result in my book. The fact that he finished it, I, I was kind of blown away by. Um, that's a really, really good result. Yeah, yeah, that, that for sure. Finishing um, that race especially was was pretty difficult so and so you know as you were coming up rate like racing like what's the what's the process like i see you're on you said you were on avolo avolo and then wildlife and then human powered health after this like are you after every season or during the season in anticipation of the next season like reaching out to directors or just trying to find contacts of people on these teams that you think would be a better fit for you or like where was like was eight human powered health reaching out to you was wildlife generation reaching out to you like ha, ha, what's the back room of that look like uh a little a little of both um you know definitely like introducing yourself to directors like in person goes a long way i think uh so i try to, to do that as much as possible um and you know like yeah reaching out or just trying to, to 
stay in the loop and, and keep your, your name in a director's mind. Um, that way, when you actually do do something in a race, you know, they're like, oh, that guy, you know, sent me an email a couple weeks ago. And then you might have a, a better chance of getting a contract. Um, so, yeah, it's a little of both, but definitely almost constantly reaching, reaching out to, to directors and team owners. And is that typically, you mentioned emails, is this typically email, text messages, seeing people at the races, or is there a component as we've seen, particularly in gravel now where social media is so important to how writers seem to do everything? Does that matter at all in the world of road racing? Um, not with the teams that I have been a part of so far, uh, as far as like, I mean, you know, you try to do your best with social media. I'm personally terrible at social media. Um, just, uh, I don't. I don't enjoy like talking about myself on the internet, although that's what I'm doing right now. But <laughs> as far as like on Instagram or anything like that, I don't, I'm not really that into it. Um, so that, that's probably a, down, a downside for me. Um, but we haven't had many, you know, s- social media requirements or anything with the teams that I've been on in the past. We've seen a lot of top writers, whether it's Wout or Todd A putting out rap videos during the tour de France. Do do you think you have a rap video in your future? I I'd do it. Like I'm not very musically gifted, so it would be entertaining, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go if you're signed for Astana next year, then you might have to do the rap video. That's become kind of a, t- a tradition of theirs at this point. Yeah, yeah, I'd be they down like for to, sure. They like to spit bars. Yeah. <laughs> There was like a period when, I don't know what, I think it was because Specialized, like the top Americans would get funneled to special, or to Astana via Specialized, the bike company. And what a ride that must have been. I, I can't imagine that was the best development situation for those guys. So um, just be lucky that you're coming along at a slightly later time than that. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, did you have any more? We we don't want to take up too much of your time. We know you have your nutrition plan, your detailed nutrition plan to go sketch yeah, out. For you've got to you've got to go got to go see if anything fell out of a cabinet in your parents' kitchen to take yeah. on your ride tomorrow. Um, <laughs> you went trick or treating yeah. to get the next month worth of on bike nutrition. Yeah, we definitely have some leftover candy because nobody comes to our house for trick or treating. So. <laughs> Yeah, Scott, I don't know if you have any personal sponsors, but if anybody from the feed is listening, I think there's a great cross-branding opportunity to do with you. It could be called the <laughs> McGill Grab Bag, and it could just be like a mystery a mystery new set that someone could hand up at any point in a ride. The rider wouldn't know what they're getting. It could be a – I mean, you could put a – Put a, a raw turkey breast in there, like whatever. Like, let's see what this – hey, let's see what this kid can do, you know? yeah i like it i think the feed might be a no maybe i'm wrong they might be a sponsor of human powered health you might have you this might become a reality quicker than we think we'll see yeah we lit the fire here today and now it'll burn throughout (laughs) 2023 and 2024 that's what we like to do scott and actually i just thought of one more thing i wanted to ask you so you're no like in november are you is this kind of a relaxed time of year for you? Or are you like already thinking about starting to build fitness back up for next season? Um, well, since I'm doing cyclocross, it's not that relaxing because one, I'm racing a good bit. And then two, every race, all my bikes and wheels get destroyed. So I spend a lot of time cleaning and fixing things and gluing stuff. And so it's not that relaxing i guess but i'm training for i'm at least going to race through the next two weekends and then decide where to go from there but like i said i made i made these plans before i had a contract for next year so we'll see so you're not like you're not going to ibiza with primus roglic and your future competition just blowing off steam in the mediterranean as no definitely not world tour no no, I'm, okay. just, I'm just hanging out at home. 
it's a good place to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, are you like are you crushing people in these cross races or what's the like what's the situation there uh i would n- no um i mostly you know take myself out of contention by crashing or breaking my bike or something like that just because i haven't been like riding my cross bike that much uh recently um but i have i've only done i did one race after worlds the weekend after and then took two weeks completely off the bike, um, and then just started back up this past weekend. So, just getting back into it a little bit, kind of doing like what Wout and Pidcock do, where they take a break and then start doing cross um, to get back back into training. Do you have a coach? And if so, what was their response to you flying back from Sydney and then doing a cross race right after the World Championships? Yeah, yeah, I do. And the only reason I did it is just because it was in Baltimore. So it was like at home. So, or I wouldn't have traveled to a race after that because yeah, that yeah. was, it was pretty brutal. Which race was it? Charm City Cross, which okay. it was part of the USCX series. So that's like the big series in the US. Yeah. Right. And that was uh, Vincent Bastian's won that race, right? Yep. He won the, the first day. And then uh, Curtis White won the second day. Is this the Belgian you were referencing, Andrew, who wins his career, comprises of winning early season American races and then taking a back seat once he gets back yeah. to Europe? Yeah, he's, I mean, he does well in European World Cup racing, but, you know, he's in the teens. Typically, he's not a top 10 rider by any means, and he comes to the U.S. early in the season for the past few seasons, it just absolutely destroys the, uh, the American pros. I got a little more information off air from some sources. So I guess I think his wife has family on the East coast and that's why he comes over to do these early season races. And if I'm wrong, please hit me up on Twitter at Vons or at Hardway pod. Let me know the reality of the story, but that's what uh, a source told me. So I've, I've investigated this a bit. I was like, wow, this guy comes over and just absolutely destroys everybody every year. But I guess it's just part of a family vacation, seeing some family and just casually destroying the American uh, domestic cyclocross community. He's like, why is everyone going so slow? What's the deal here? Did they not start racing cross when they were six months old? But yeah, I mean, Scott, you've been out there. You've, uh, you've raced with them. What's it like? With Vinny? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, yeah, he's definitely like one of the, the smartest racers out there for sure. Um, yeah, but like, like I said, I usually like Charm City, I, I had good legs and, but just could not, I like broke a shoe and like crashed pretty hard and just couldn't ride my bike very well <laughs> coming back from, from right. Australia and then doing a race like four days later was not the best plan. Had you been running at all? We, uh, this just Scott, as an aside, one of the other things we've explored on the podcast this year was the, you know, the information that Primoz Roglic goes running every day before he does bike races, we thought was quite interesting, but for you, I mean, jumping into cross, you are running a lot. I don't know if do you run barriers or do you bunny hop, but you're off the bike a lot and it's using your body in a very different way than you do when you're road racing. Uh, I, I run now, but I didn't really, I don't do any running like during the road season. You didn't run, for example, the morning of worlds, you didn't go out for a run to wake your legs (laughs) legs up. No. Okay. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not quite sure what Primo's is thinking there, but yeah, I wouldn't start running before races. Or and maybe you should if you you know if you want to win a couple of grand tours. I maybe I don't want to be responsible for ruining your career. <laughs> Please don't do this. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. It was. Uh, it, wait, well, you didn't ask about the split. The split saddle. Andrew, do you have a question about this split nose saddle? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So the split nose saddle is that. Just team issue equipment, or is that a saddle that you choose to ride, or what's the story? Um, it is a, a team sponsor, but it's definitely like my favorite saddle I've ever ridden. Um, 
So I'll probably ride them next year as well. Hopefully. You're going to be like introducing, you're like reverse colonizing Europe with the split nose saddle. They're going to be, blown yeah, it looks, it. it looks funny, but it's very comfortable and I don't get any, I don't have any issues. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what you want out of a saddle. <laughs> Indeed, those, <laughs> yes. are, those are indeed good qualities in a saddle. You, just, you don't commonly see them in the world tour, so it was uh, in addition to the revelation of seeing you on rim brakes, also seeing you on a split nose saddle made you stand out quite a bit. All right, well, thanks for taking the time to join us, and Andrew, thanks for thanks for bringing the heat with your. I mean, this was like a frost nixon style interrogation from you to scott so that was amazing to watch and i hope everyone enjoyed listening and and good luck next year it's uh it's gonna be exciting to watch you step up a level and take your talents uh to some big races in europe yeah yeah thanks for having me on yeah thanks so much scott good luck next season and thanks for joining us